Welcome back to this broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict. If you are watching here on YouTube, please click that subscribe button. i got to turn the gain down on this thing. You know, my kids come in here sometimes and, and mess with the, uh, with the audio equipment, and they turn knobs because they think they're playing it in a spaceship. And then, uh, and then I come in here and everything's discombobulated. No big deal. What does it mean to obey the gospel? This is a phrase that is used uh, multiple times. Go ahead and turn that music down a little bit more. It's a phrase that's used multiple times in Scripture. It's used three main times in the New Testament, three memorable times in the New Testament, Romans, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Peter. What does it mean to obey the gospel? When we're thinking about the law-gospel distinction, right, sometimes it might seem a little odd to uh, couch the gospel in terms of obedience, in terms of our obedience, because we understand the gospel as the good news of what God has done for us, not uh, not the good news of what we have done for God. And so, how do we understand this phraseology? Because it is a it is a biblical phrase. So, uh, wh- what do we what do we what are we to make of it? What what are we to do with with phraseology like this in Scripture? Again, it's Romans ten sixteen. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 and 1 Peter 4.17, where it's mentioned. And um, I think what would be good and, and, and maybe most helpful uh, to start off with would be just to kind of review the law-gospel distinction. And when you're dealing with a law-gospel distinction, at the very principal level, it's, it's very simple. Uh, if the law is really just the expression of any commandment, which man is required to obey, uh, then we can see how it's distinguished from the gospel, which is an expression of what God has freely done for us, uh, freely done for sinners or on behalf of sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So to, to summarize that kind of distinction, the law is what's required of man and the gospel is what God has done for man for failing to meet the requirements. Um, and, th- and then there's a, another use of the law. Uh, so the law, you know, doesn't only condemn us. That's the first use, is that it condemns man. Um, but then once man is Christian, he's then pointed to the law, not so that he can obey it to merit any sort of favor from God or, or any sort of gospel, you know, any sort of blessings that come exclusively through the gospel, but... He's pointed back to it as a uh, as a revelation of what it's like to be free in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is an expression of liberty from sin, so we obey because the Spirit works in us. Uh, we are freed from sin, and not only that, but we're also thankful uh, for what God has done for us. So we have that guilt, then grace. And upon receiving grace, gratitude. So we walk in gratitude, uh, in in cheerful obedience for what God has done for us. So there's still a relationship that the Christian has to the law. So it's not as if we're antinomians or anything like that. There's still a, a, a duty, uh, a, a cheerful duty, if you will, to obey the law as a result of what God has done for us through the gospel. Um, but we don't think of the law, or we shouldn't think of the law, as a condition to maintain a gospel status before God, we shouldn't think of the law as a, a, a means whereby we, 
we uh, obtain or attain to any sort of justification before God. All right, there is that, uh, you know, popular uh, chapter in James, James chapter 2, that talks about faith without works, which is dead, uh, that justification isn't by faith only. Um, and and there James is, of course, making the point that there there is a justification or a vindication that the Christian has uh, that vindicates their claim to faith, but it, it's yet not vindicating them in the eyes of God. What The only thing that justifies us or vindicates us in the eyes of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, though there are external works, there are, are deeds that, uh, that flow from a changed heart that justify one's claim to have a changed heart uh, before men, yet that is not uh, the kind of justification that we're talking about here, which is justification before God. And, and there's nothing we can do in obedience to the law that's going to uh, attain to that justification. Uh, if we go to the Second London Confession just quickly uh, so that we can kind of set up the, uh, the, remainder of the, the remainder of the discussion here, uh, Article 1 of Chapter 11 says this. It says, Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them. In, in other words, it's not, it's not because God has worked in the sinner to get the sinner to obey that accounts for man's justification, but by pardoning their sins, he says, expiating their sins, taking them away. They've been imputed to Christ, and then... Uh, and then the righteousness of Christ has been imputed, imputed to them by accounting and accepting their persons righteous as their persons as righteous. So in other words, you have this this kind of twofold effect, right? You have uh, the pardoning of sins, the the expiation of sin on the one hand, and then you also have the accounting and accepting their persons, the persons of sinners, as righteous. And then it goes on to qualify not for anything wrought in them, not for anything worked in them, uh, which is what we would call sanctification. So it's not because of any measure of sanctification. It's not because of any measure of, of, uh, of, of what man has done as a result of having the Spirit work in him even. It's not by anything done by them, the confession says, but for Christ's sake alone. Now let's contrast this. Again, we're just kind of setting up the, the discussion here. Let's contrast this with something that Richard Baxter says. Um, and, uh, uh, this is in a, a, a work called Aphorisms of Justification by Richard Baxter, which is a 17th century uh, so-called Reformed theologian, although he was not Reformed on the doctrine of justification. His position was controversial during his own lifetime. Uh, it was addressed by men like John Owen and, and, and others. Uh, but Richard Baxter says this. He says, Though Christ hath sufficiently satisfied the law... Yet is it not his will or the will of the Father that any man should be justified or saved thereby who hath not some ground in himself of personal and particular right and claim thereto. So in other words, what Baxter is saying is that there has to be something in man that qualifies him for justification or for a, a rightness with God. All right, there has to be something in man that qualifies him for justification. He goes on, he goes on to say, nor that any should be justified by the blood only as shed or offered, except it be also received and applied, so that no man by the mere satisfaction made, 
Notice he calls the satisfaction of Christ mere. By the mere satisfaction made is freed from the law or curse of the first violated covenant. Absolutely, but conditionally only. So it's almost as if, you know, Baxter turns the covenant of grace into a, in, into like a covenant of works part two. There's still yet something in man that accounts for his justification. And uh, the same was true under the old 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 covenant or the covenant of works uh, in the garden, not the not the old covenant in the sense of, of the Abrahamic covenant and following therefrom. Uh, those covenants were never purposed for man to earn or merit his justification. But when we're looking at the garden covenant, the old covenant um, or the uh, the covenant of works that God made with Adam, uh, that covenant was conditioned upon Adam's continued obedience. Uh, and during that probationary period, uh, Adam was able to obey, um, made able to obey, and his his happiness before God was conditioned upon his obedience to God. Uh, and and so one would have to ask, well, on on Baxter's account, what except for you know the the nature of the blessings perhaps, and and maybe the uh, there's, there's more of an ease to the new covenant than there was under the old and even under the covenant of works. Uh, yet one would have to ask substantially what's the difference between the covenant of grace, as Baxter characterizes it here, and the covenant of works. And there doesn't seem to be much substantial difference at all. Um, and so as we consider what it means to obey the gospel, which is again is a phrase that's used three times in the New Testament, uh, we, we have to understand that this has been an ongoing discussion uh, within Reformed theology, within Protestant orthodoxy in general, I would say, that uh, is very important. It's actually one of the factors that distinguishes uh, non-Catholics, Roman Catholics, non-Roman Catholics from Roman Catholics. Um, and so what happens, let's look at a couple of, of uh, we've already kind of looked at Baxterianism, which is that teaching set forth by Baxter, I'll broach it again here in a minute, but when we mix law and gospel together, and again, the law is what is required of man, the gospel is what God has done for man through Christ as a result of man not meeting the requirement. Uh, so what happens whenever we mix law and gospel? Well, you get Roman Catholicism, which makes obedience to the law necessary for redemption or for justification, since they mix justification and sanctification together. Uh, there's a really uh, good description in the book that is, I have it up there, The Doctrine on Which the Church Stands or Falls. Uh, it's edited by Matthew Barrett. Uh, there's some. It's a book full of essays on the doctrine of justification, uh, historical considerations, dogmatic considerations, and so on. Uh, there's a very helpful point made in that book that for Roman Catholicism, justification uh, is not really distinguished from other aspects of the Christian life. Rather, justification really summarizes the whole of the Christian life or or entails all that which is involved in the Christian life. And so you get this collapse of, of pretty much everything about the Christian life into justification. And that means at bare minimum that sanctification and justification are really indistinguishable upon final analysis. To the extent that one is sanctified, one is also justified. To the extent that one is not sanctified is the extent to which they are not justified. 
very dangerous teaching and a very dangerous conflation or confusion of justification and sanctification when those things really should be kept distinct, as I think they are in Scripture as well. And then there's, of course, Baxterianism, which if I could, if I could summarize Baxterianism in, in my own words, I would just say Baxterianism maintains the necessity of man's work unto the finality of justification. So there's this notion of final justification that if you do not work, you will not receive final justification. Uh, so Baxter believed that faith, quote-unquote, uh, which which actually includes the obedience of faith for him. That's how he defines faith. He basically defines it as faithfulness. Uh, whereas you look at Thomas Goodwin and Owen and others, and there's a specific act of faith that receives uh, Christ unto justification. Baxter wouldn't really make that distinction. So faithfulness or the obedience of faith is part of the condition for the new covenant. He, in fact, writes that in thesis number 70 of Aphorisms of Justification. And, um, and so, again, he's, he's doing in principle the same thing that Roman Catholicism does, and that is to, to mix works and faith together, to mix sanctification and justification together. What's the point here? Well, the point is that when law and gospel are mixed together, when they're confused, when they're conflated, the gospel turns from being a free gift, a free gift of God, to something we have to do something for. All right, so it turns from being a free gift of God unmerited, uh, unconditional, into something that all of a sudden we have to do something in order to receive. Uh, there's, some, there's something in man that accounts for why he has received and why he now participates in this gospel uh, and all gospel promises. So that's what's at stake here. So as we look at these phrase, the, the, the use of that phrase, obedience, obedience to the gospel or obey the gospel, uh, we need to, we need to, I think we need to be very careful as to what it's talking about. Now, just, just to preface this, we didn't really go over any of this, but you know, you find distinctions all over the place in the New Testament between faith and works. Um, justification and sanctification is, is, is more or less implicitly distinguished. Um, but when you look at, uh, faith and works, there are explicit distinctions made between those two things and and actually a certain kind of opposition between them as two different ways in which man might come before God. And we know in Romans and Galatians that man can't come before God via works of the law. He cannot come before God via his own, his own righteousness. Um, and so he must come to God through Christ by faith alone. And, you know, that's Romans 5, 6, uh, Galatians 3, 4, you know, it's all over the place in the New Testament, so it's it, that's, that's worth considering as well. But here, I think what I want to do is just kind of jump into these three phrases. I'll read the verses in which they appear, and, uh, and, we'll, and we'll just kind of talk about them from there on. So that, that phrase, either obey the gospel, obey the gospel takes place twice in the New Testament, while obeyed the gospel is used once. And so three total times that phrase is used in Romans 10, 16, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and then 1 Peter 4, 17. And so the question becomes, uh, what does that phrase mean? Well, before I get into that, let me read each of these verses. So you have first Romans 10, 16, 
which says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? All right, so that's Romans 10, 16. But then there's 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, describing uh, the judgment of Christ in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is pretty serious, right? Because those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ are the ones who are going to be the recipients of this vengeance, uh, this this godly, holy vengeance. So <laughs> we'd better understand what it means to obey the gospel because those who do not obey the gospel are going to suffer the wrath of God. Um, the other thing is uh, that we might consider is if that phrase entails or requires our works or obedience to the law, um, f- uh, you know, statements like 2 Thessalonians 1.8 ought to be very terrifying. Uh, because, you know, if we're talking about obedience or adherence to a law, I know for a fact that I do not obey God to the extent that I must obey God to please him in and of myself. Right. And so I know that uh, there's no extent to which I can obey God that will warrant any sort of justification. Uh, like there are there are there's no way in which my works as sanctified as they may be can warrant justification. In fact, let me let me go back. Well, here, I'll do that in a minute. I'll, I'll go back to the to the confession here in a minute. Uh, First Peter 417 is the third place. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, another reference to uh, to judgment occurring uh, upon disobedience to the gospel. So we need to understand what that phrase means. Let me go to um, the chapter on good works in uh, the 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 uh, Second London Confession. Uh, the Let's see. Um, chapter 16, it is. And it'll come, it, it'll be paragraph, uh, let's see, four of chapter 16 says, They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height, which is possible in this life, are so far from being able to super arrogate. That means go above and beyond. So it's so far from being able to super arrogate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. So what the confession is saying there is that the best Christian alive, right? The best Christian alive, the the most moral, virtuous, genuine Christian alive cannot go above and beyond what God requires and, and much less than going above and beyond what God requires, they fall short of what they're actually obligated to do uh, at the baseline. Uh, so the basic requirements that God requires of us, we are yet unable to do them uh, to the degree we must do them. And so um, proof text there of uh, Galatians 5.17. We'll, we'll go there real quick if I can type right. Uh, Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So there's this reality of lurking sin, uh, this this reality of fallenness, continued fallenness and short fallenness, uh, f- 
before God. That remains with the Christian. Of course, you got the whole uh, issue of Romans 7. We understand that that's a debated text, but, I mean, if you read it with Galatians 5, I mean, I, th- I think that Paul could very well be uh, speaking about himself as a converted Christian and an apostle, of course. So, uh, the reality is that even in our best works, we are still yet far worse than we know, I think, would be the right way to think about it. And uh, And so... Again, that all just kind of plays into how we understand obey the gospel in light of the rest of Scripture. Can we really understand obeying the gospel as our exertion of deeds, of good deeds? Because if that's if that's what it means to obey the gospel, it looks like we're going to fail miserably and then uh, receive the vengeance of Christ, uh, if that's what that means. And so, uh, how do, how do we understand this? Well, there's, there are three. There are three possibilities. That um, three possibilities for how we how, for how we could understand the phrase "obey the gospel." Um, we could understand it firstly as uh, the gospel is a new law, and it's a new law to be obeyed, without which obedience. Uh, to it, with without such obedience, we will fall short of the reward. So it, we kind of would view, in this case, obedience to the gospel as obedience to a New Testament kind of law, and if we fall short of it, we'll fall short of the reward that comes at the end as well, this kind of final justification uh, notion here. And then, that, so that's one way we could understand it, that the gospel really represents a new law that we are uh, that we are enabled to obey, and it's obedience to this new law that kind of just gets us to the, gets us to the reward. The second way we might be able to understand is is that the gospel makes us able to obey the moral law or the po- and the positive laws of the new covenant, without which obedience we will fall short of final justification. That's more specifically Richard Baxter's position there. So the position would be that God in the gospel makes us able to obey the moral law and the positive laws of the gospel covenant, without which obedience we will fall short of final justification. Uh, and, and so one one has to ask, okay, well, to what, a, to what extent are we required to obey? Are we just required to have some obedience and and is that obedient is it okay if that obedience is is imperfect because we know it is in light of you know, of what scripture says? Or is it complete, comprehensive, perfect obedience to these terms without which we will not see the light of, of redemption at the end? Uh, so, so there are a lot of questions that that, that that raises, but one of the things that happens, notwithstanding those questions, is that works and faith are conflated, sanctification and justification are confused, and it would seem as though we are doomed. <laughs> we are doomed in light of what the rest of Scripture says. There's no way a person can keep the moral law of God and the positive laws of the new covenant, which would be like baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, among some other ones, but those are the two main ones. There's no way we can keep all of that perfectly internally and externally to an extent necessary to reach the end, right? It, so if the end is conditioned upon our obedience, are we talking, is imperfect obedience allowed or is perfect obedience what's required? And if it's imperfect obedience, that is the condition of us reaching the end then in you know then in what way can can god remain just well we'll get we'll get to that here in a minute
The third option is that we can understand the obedience in this context, in the context of Romans 10, 2 Thessalonians 1, and 1 Peter 4. We can understand obedience in that context of nothing other than evangelical faith. So faith, insofar as it's an act, is here being referred to as obedience. But it's not like faith is like an actual work performed by us on account of which we receive something as a result. All right, so it's 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 not an obedience in that sense. It's a, it's a receiving of the gospel. It's a it's a submission to the reality of the gospel, a uh, a a reception of the gospel rather than a rejection of the gospel. Because we know that those who reject the gospel and yet remain outside of Christ are going to be judged because they don't have a mediator. Right? And they've sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. So obedience in this case and I think upon the broader consideration of the whole of Scripture, really obey the gospel, has to be referring to the reception of the gospel by faith alone. And so in this case, it's it, the, obedience is referring to the open hand of faith, which is a work of God, not a work that's in us. It's just the open hand of faith receiving the gospel freely. Uh, it's receiving the gospel freely given rather than rejecting it. And so far from this being a phrase that requires uh, our obedience to the law, uh, this only refers to the reception of the gospel as a result of God working in us. I think that's the right way to understand that uh, in light of the rest of what Scripture has to say about it. And and we know that the confessional doctrine uh, would be much more in line with that option there. Now... A few things that I would say, just kind of by way of defense of that third option, I think Romans 3.23 is incredibly important because what it tells us is that no matter no matter whether we're Christians or not, uh, no matter whether or not a person is a Christian, that they the reality that they still fall short of the glory of God is still there. Uh, because Romans 3.23 is, is, is written to Christians. We know that because in verse 24, it immediately flows into the doctrine of justification. The people uh, who Romans 3.23 describes are the same people Romans 3.24 describes. So if you go to Romans 3.23, you'll see for all have sinned and fall short. That's present tense, by the way. For, those who, uh, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God... Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, uh, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So, the people justified in verse 24 are the same people that verse 23 describes, which means that they are the same people that fall short of the glory of God, it's the people who fall short of the glory of God who are yet being justified. That's where this reformational idea of uh, uh, simul justus et peccator comes from, simultaneously just yet sinner. And so um, uh, is from places like Romans 3, 23 and 24, um, because these are simultaneously sinners yet being justified, interestingly, interestingly enough. And what that means, I think, at, at bare minimum is that if we're presently falling short of the glory of God, then what accounts for our justification has to be a consideration other than ourselves. It has to be Christ, 
right, and the righteousness of Christ rather than the quality of our own obedience. Because in our obedience, we're falling short of the glory of God. It's in the present tense. So I don't think we have any other any other way to understand that. I think it's pretty clear that we currently fall short of the glory of God, and thus we must rely on someone else for our justification. So if you then go and you say, well, actually, um, yeah, we, we get that Christ has procured justification for us, uh, but once we have that initial justification, we're bound to obey lest we don't attain to the final justification at the end. Well, what that does is it, I think, totally negates the significance of Romans 3, 23 and 24. The significance, the rhetorical point there, I think that's of incredible value, is that it demonstrates the nature of justification being by grace alone through faith alone. Because if it wasn't, it would follow that, what, that we that we procure justification or or, or arrive at final justification in virtue of fallen works, works that are still tainted and mixed with sin. I don't think that makes sense. Um, I don't think it makes sense when the holiness of God is considered. Uh, even if you say that those works are conditioned or, or, that, or that those works are accepted in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, then what you, then it's still the Lord Jesus Christ that serves as the basis of the righteousness of those works. So you couldn't make the end, uh, you couldn't make the end or final justification conditioned upon anything in us as Baxter does, and of course as Roman Catholicism does, uh, because the final point of reference is is still yet Jesus Christ and and His righteousness, and the only reason our works are accepted before God is because of his righteousness. So then how can how could our works then serve as any sort of a ground or reason or explanation for an attainment to final justification, if that's the case? Um, the second consideration would be, uh, or yeah, the second consideration would be, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, is that if our works are not complete, if they're not per- perfect in themselves, like if our if our gospel obedience, so to speak, isn't perfect, then how could they result in final justification in the eyes of God? Um, because God requires nothing less than perfect works. Be holy, for your Father in heaven is holy. That is the standard of the law. And if we're going to say that we're now bound to obey the law uh, unto final justification, and if we don't obey, then we won't reach final justification, then what we're doing is we're saying, well... God will actually settle for, uh, for imperfect works. Unless you want to say that our works are perfect, which I don't think anybody wants to say that. I don't think Baxter would have said that. I don't think a lot of people who, who follow Baxter in, in you know current times uh, would want to say that either. I don't think anybody would want to say that our works are perfect right now. I think everybody would grant the fact that they're mixed with sin and that they're inconsistent and so on and so forth, that we still have sin. Well, if that's the case, then God, being a perfectly just God, cannot accept those as reasons for our final justification. If he did, then he would be unjust, right? Uh, he, 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 he can, we can only be accepted through Christ. <laughs> the reality is, is that if if any if anything in us serves as the reason or explanation for our justification then either we have to we have to think that we are 
capable of being perfect, or we have to think that God is happy with subpar works. There's really no in-between there. Um, and neither of those things are true. <laughs> and so we have to have ultimate and exclusive reference to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Nothing in us can account for justification. Anyway, that's my two cents on it. What does it mean to obey the gospel? It means to receive the gospel by faith, to receive the, the, the promise of the gospel by faith, forgiveness of sins, uh, the righteousness of Christ. Uh, and, and that faith is worked by God, uh, God the Spirit in us upon the effectual call. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.